We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What a Win at Newcastle. Arsenal now just massive points deduction for Liverpool and Manchester United away from a possible top four bid. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Alex Smith. You can block me on Twitter. Yankee Gunner. Look, if United and Liverpool are docked, I don't know, 15, 20 points, is it back on? It could be back on. I don't know. We'll probably touch on the protest thing uh, a little bit down the line. Coming up in this podcast, though, Alex Kirkland from the Spanish Football Podcast excellent Arsenal fan uh, stroke Spanish football reporter is going to give a look ahead to the second leg against Villarreal, the Spanish reaction to Emery's halftime sub, to Emery in general, to Arteta in general, to Thomas Partey, obviously formerly of Atletico Madrid, now of Arsenal, and uh, just all things Arsenal Villarreal. So that's coming up after the break. We will have a special bonus episode tomorrow, an interview with Grant Wall. So look for that coming out on the regular feed. That'll be for everyone tomorrow. But for now... We have a special regular episode featuring Clive. You can find him on Twitter at Clive PFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. And the briefest of appearances by Scott, who will be here for about 18 minutes, but we're going to milk that for all it's worth. I've got nipples. Can you milk me? Uh, look it up, kids. It's from a movie. I promise I'm not just being disgusting. Scott's on Twitter at O underscore that underscore crab. Hello, Scott. Yeah. You know what movie that's from, right? Of course I do. I'm the same age as you. Okay, meet the so Fockers, if anyone's wondering. Yeah. I didn't I didn't just say something nasty for the purposes of it, because sometimes on this pod that does happen. Scott, I'll start with you right off the bat. Um, this, this is a dead rubber league game, if that phrase is applicable here. It, it's a game that doesn't matter, but it's still nice to play well and win. I thought we were thoroughly dominant against a pretty pathetic Newcastle team. But to be fair, beating up the really bad teams is the first step on the road back to being a top-four type side, and we've talked about that often. What I want to focus on 
are a couple of things he did in this game that might give us an eye towards Thursday and just generally what we're planning to do. And the first thing I want to ask you is, given that he did opt to go with Shaka again at left back in this sort of 4-3-3, 3-3-4 formation, and these numbers are, are, are sort of getting less and less relevant with every passing day, do you suspect that this system is the system he now favors for the team, at least for the balance of this season, including on Thursday? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if there was ever a time to give Granit Xhaka a break, this was probably the time. And the fact that he didn't probably really means that he doesn't trust um, Cedric over in that position. Uh, no, I've been kind of looking at the, the past maps for the last few matches ever since Tierney went down, and the shape has been basically the same, um, regardless of who's been the striker, and this match was no different. So I imagine that we will continue to play this kind of hybrid back three. Um, it, it was actually a little bit interesting to see Hector Bellerin um, kind of participate in this one because he definitely played the role different than Callum Chambers had when he was right back because Callum Chambers definitely played it more as a, a right center back who's had a little bit of a, a wideness. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting. But yeah, I think that this probably means we're going to stay with the same formation. We'll have our, our wide triangles with a, a striker kind of floating in between to create overloads. And I think that'll be kind of the case. Mm. To be fair, after a year of being locked down, I have a little bit of a wideness too. So happens to the best of us, Callum. Um, I'll stick with you just for a second. Uh, Scott, in terms of the selection for this game, you got three things at play. You have the fact that it is a meaningless game, so you can rotate your important players out of the firing line. You have the fact that it is a meaningful game in the sense that there are things you may want to see or players you want to kind of get ready for Thursday. And, you know, then you have the fact that you might want to look ahead to things that are going to matter next season, although our eyes are still firmly on this season, at least vis-a-vis Europe. So with all of that in mind, were there any selections that maybe surprised you or disappointed you? One that I think about is Ceballos. His Arsenal career is over. Before the first leg at Villarreal, he was talking about looking forward to going back to Spain. He put in a performance at Villarreal that will hasten that uh, occurrence. He's not available for Thursday. Would you have preferred to see a debut from an academy player or another selection here? Yeah, possibly. And, you know, but those guys, I think, you know, Aziz probably would have been the one that I probably would have liked to have seen. But I think he was in the the under 23 match on Friday. So I think that that one kind of gave us our answer as soon as we saw the lineups on Friday for that team. I mean, I guess it is in that sense that, you know, he, he can't play on Thursday. So this is the time to get him and, you know, make sure that, you know, we have coverage for our, our already pretty depleted midfield. Because I think Party was the guy to probably really protect for, you know, looking forward. So I'm, I'm not overly worried about that. I think it was kind of a, a disappointment that we couldn't have seen a little bit more rotation because it's like, what are we going to learn about William? It would have been nice to see Will, or, you know, uh, sorry, Nelson get a start, those kinds of things. Um, I understand the Aubameyang one because he's coming back and he really does need the match sharpness and you know, I thought it was nice that you know we were able to get a sub off for him pretty quick I would probably would have you know made a decision a little bit sooner than that but I mean that's neither here nor there and that's something that I want to look at more is the substitution patterns you know further but I'll, I'll have to go finish looking up that research um, I thought you know David Louise was looking really good in this match and it's a, a real bummer that he got hurt but I think this was another one where if he was going to be in line to be included on Thursday he needed <clears> to be at the minutes now um, it was just a you know a, a bad idea that he got hurt. Yeah. Um, other than that, I thought it was a fine lineup. It was probably the the right balance between you know rotation and you know getting players that we need minutes for. 
Yeah, I think that's mostly right. I mean, look, if you want to quibble at the edges, like could Aubameyang come off a little earlier or did we need to give Party those five minutes and risk him? Could Martinelli have come off earlier so Shar couldn't try to end his career? Like, you know, those those are questions that I think are more at the margins. And if you have real issues with them, it may be more because you're looking to have real issues with them. Um, but I do think you could probably do something different from Ceballos. You could probably do something different than Willian. Look, Nelson may have some role in his own misfortune by yeah. potentially rejecting a loan move. I, I accept that. But now he is an asset to the club that we may be looking to sell. I find it hard to believe we'll be looking to keep him. And what is his resale value? I mean, he was a fairly hot property. Can you play him these next five games in the league? Show what he can do? And and if he's not in your plans, at least maybe turn him into a Brewster-type transfer for us. You know, Brewster for Liverpool, nothing special, but they turned him into a good transfer. I think... You know, th- those are questions that we'll probably review at the end of the season a little bit more. So, Clive, there are a couple interesting performances in this game that obviously have relevance for Thursday. I think we're going to spend a big portion of this conversation talking about Martinelli, but I want to set that to one side just for a second and talk about Hector Bellerin. Um, both fullbacks are a question that we are really going to be thinking about going into Thursday. Cedric obviously is not trusted. He just isn't. We can debate, again, the the wisdom of that signing at another time, but it's clear he's not trusted. And it's not that Shaq is being picked at left back over Cedric. I think that is the wrong way to frame it. It's that we are playing a system with a different type of left back than what... We're not playing with a real left back right now. That's not the system we're using. I think this means that this is what we'll do on Thursday. But what's less clear to me is what we'll do on the other side, where I think Callum Chambers' spot is not as secure as you know we might have thought just a few days ago, nor should it be. So did you see anything from Hector Bellerin in this game that leads you to believe he might be in contention for Thursday? Because me, look, I love the guy. I finally came around to the idea that he's just lost it. He's been bad this season. It's not great. But I start to think that the popular opinion about how bad he's been has swung too far to an extreme that's not reflected in reality. We're not talking about whether he should play ahead of world-class players. It's Cedric who has no role and Chambers who isn't a, a clean fit at fullback in my view. So do, do you think Bellerin's performance gives him any argument for be, being the starter on Thursday? Uh, I thought he, I thought he done fine. Um, I do like the, I do like his go forward and, and this is it. Is he, I hear you talking about fullbacks. You say, well, we're not playing a, a left back. Well, you like attacking fullbacks. So if somebody's not an attacking fullback, you think they're not a fullback. Whereas some fullbacks sit in. <laughs> yeah. Some fullbacks sit in and, and Shaka sits in and distributes on that side and his passing numbers have barely dropped. Have barely dropped. It's incredible how much he gets on the ball. Right. So I think he's a player that I actually think in some ways we could be underrating. But anyway, that's nothing neither here nor there. I think with Bellerin, just think about what happened in this game. He's got a right-footed centre-back that can actually pass the ball. Mm. Makes a big difference. And what, he, and what Hector does very cleverly is he gets himself out of the defensive zones early, stands on the side, and he goes the inside run and then goes in behind. And, he put, and David Luiz loves these runners in behind. Everyone goes, oh, Hector got forward really well. He got forward really well because someone can actually kick the ball <laughs> at the back. I mean, I, I, you You're not exactly before, praising Rob Holding in this in this conversation. Well, is he what can't, I'm hearing. He, he literally can't kick the ball. Yeah, I I, I talk it about feels this like a an lot. important part of football. You know, the whole foot. Yeah, and I, ball I, thing. I talk about this a lot. You hear me talk about this, but we've got players that can't actually kick the football across the pitch. That is the truth. We've got a number of them, and one, and they just can't kick it. 
David Luiz can kick the football and Hector knows it and he goes early and gets in behind all the time. And by the way, there are opportunities where we missed him. We missed him in the game. And he made loads of runs like this. He loves first phase running, early running, gambles, go forward, get in behind. And I think with Rob Holding not, sorry, with Rob Holding likely to play, for me, Chambers plays because they've got a relationship. So I think that's the, that's what I would do. And I, what it allows, it allows people, it allows our defence to rock around. You know, it goes, you know, with a, with a three, one side, depending on where we're attacking. That's why I do. And Hector does not play in the right back slot. He just doesn't. He plays up the field. On a day like Newcastle, when we're on top, then he looks really, really great because we're in their half. And he's exactly the fullback you want when you're chasing a goal, you want to push teams back, when you've got good distribution from the back. So well, Rob Holding is not great in his people near him, next mm. to him, <clears throat> comfort. And Rob Holding's going to play, isn't he? On um, Thursday, so Wrapped that's why cotton wool for Thursday, our star center back. <laughs> We've rested him. <laughs> Who needs Maldini? We've rested him. <laughs> We've rested him for this big game. I'm sorry he didn't cost 50 million pounds, as Arsene Wenger once said. Well, you know what? I'm sorry we didn't spend 50 million pounds. Um, you know what? Like, Clive, I, I hear you. I think, I think to play the way we want to play, though, you have to be brave. And what I mean by that is you have to have players who are willing to be further up the pitch because actually by sitting back, you create the space to play into. I think we saw that from Shaka in the first leg, that he stayed back and Ceballos can't run. We know that. Pepe's up the pitch. And there was that gap between Shaka and the forwards. And that was where Villarreal wanted to play into. I think you have to be brave. If you take those, the step that five yards up or even 10 yards up the pitch, you close up that gap. Now what you open up is the gap in behind. And that's where not being able to run becomes a problem. I, I don't know. I don't know how you solve it. I think... If we play Shaq at left back, Chiquese is going to be on the on the right side again, and that's going to be the target area. I'm not sure that right back is an issue against Villarreal so much. So, you know, we saw in the West Ham game when we were chasing that game that Calum Chambers did just fine in a game where we needed to score three goals, and we did. So I that position may I'm be not, less... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'm not sure that Chambers is the one. I know, it's, I, know <laughs> I know it's a bit crazy, right? But the most technical and the best right back is sort of in the middle of those two Probably Cedric, but Arteta just—I mean, he, he doesn't trust him. It's pretty clear, or doesn't well, rate him. Or, he I doesn't trust him because of that his... stupid thing he did in the last minute. Of the was it the Slavia game at home? Yeah, I've seen him since when he went up the pitch and decided, well, why should I go forward in the last minute? How about I pass backwards and give them an equalizer? Yeah. We've not seen him since, right? So, so yeah, I can see that Scott just wrote in there about Chambers. He's passed him from the back. I watched Chambers when he came on, right centre back, and he was just. The moment he came on, I thought we looked a little bit unsettled. I thought he he dances. He doesn't. He dances around the ball. Everything he's dancing doesn't doesn't wreak composure. When he's staying there, he's just like it's all it's all jittery, 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 jittery. And I just want to get at him. He says I can be got at. That's what he says to me in that slot. But when he's got people around him, he's one. He's a little bit higher up. I think he becomes like more of a, a right centre mid, stroke inverted fullback. And I think he's a lot calmer there. And you see his skill there. When you put him on the last line and he's your last line defender, unless he's in the back three, I think he gets stressed. I don't think he's strong enough, big enough. I just don't think he is. So, so yeah, that's just my view. But there you go. Yeah, I I, yeah go, go ahead, Scott. Because I, I have to say, I heard on the Arscast too, they were talking about, they were picking their 11 for Thursday. And, and I think they settled on Chambers at, at center back. And I... 
I can't abide by it. I don't, I don't love holding. I don't trust Chambers as, as a central defender to know where he is in the box to to really track runners. I, I think, I think. I mean, Clive's used the word souffle, I think, before. Uh, not, to, not to pin that on you, Clive, but I, I worry about him at center back. But you, you're a little more open to it for his passing? I mean, yeah, that's the one thing that I I don't I mean. I, I think Rob Holding is a perfectly fine center back. I think he's very competent. And, like, that's it's very kind of, like, damning with faint praise, I guess, in that sense that I, I feel comfortable when he's there. But I feel like in this match Thursday, we're going to see Unai Emery go ultra conservative. So I'm, I guess, a little bit less concerned on that. So I guess I'm making the trade off where I, I'd rather have um, Callum Chambers passing in that regard. I mean, this is the one where I, I feel really weird saying it, but it's like, man, we really are going to miss Dave Louise um, and hit what he's able to bring to a back line. That's something I never thought I would have imagined saying, but I think this would have been a perfect match for him because I think he is just a little bit more comfortable at that back, um, at that center back that I definitely feel more comfortable than if it was Callum Chambers, but his passing is just so good. And I think that's something that we are going to need on Thursday. Yeah, and I, I think I'd rather, <clears throat> I think I'd rather have Gabriel left center back, but because I think yeah, that's the thing that I think David Luiz and Gabriel together, both partner, you know, being able to yeah, being able to have the you know the Portuguese there, I think that's something that really brings him more comfort, um, and being able to communicate and you know because I think it's just a matter of time you know I'm, learning English is hard, so I'm not blaming him for that, but I think having somebody who speaks the same language as you next to you is super important um, for the communication of the center point. backs, and I yeah. think that's something that has affected him when he's well, played with David Luiz. He's looked really good when he hasn't. It's been a little shaky. What if he plays with Pablo Marie? I saw a game. I can't remember which game it was at the weekend where there were two left left footed center backs that were started. Man City. Yeah, Man, Man City. City. I, I, maybe because Pep did it. We'll see Marie and Gabriel together. Maybe. Um, I mean, I know it's against the law apparently to play, but like, I don't know that holding is as good as either of those guys. And I don't know that I trust Chambers to be a center back. And if we're not going to be under constant pressure, I mean, the only thing you'd say is with two left-footed center backs, do you have any access to the right flank when you want to play out? You know, is it is it too easy to force the Especially play yeah, if you have direction? Jacka on the left too, so that's yeah, a lot three, of left three foot. left footers. Yeah, um, they'll never see it coming. It's just crazy enough to work. Uh, before we lose you, Scott, I want to talk Gabriel Martinelli because you know this is the hard thing when when you have a great squad, a really great squad. You can prioritize players who fit the system just right. Do the, you know, when you can say Raheem Sterling's not fitting the system as well as Phil Foden or as Mares or, you know, Bernardo or Gabriel Jesus or Kuna Guerra, like you, you don't lose anything when you step to the next player. When you have a shot monster, key pass monster, chaos agent who is like an energizer bunny towards goal in Gabriel Martinelli in a team that has been for the better part of a few seasons, a bit shot shy and a bit goal shy, it is a little harder to justify not using him. Now, I understand, you know, coming back from injury, got to be patient, young player, big future. I'm not in any way denying that. And, and Arteta came out after the game was like, I love him more than you do. Trust me. Fine. My question to you is, how good was Martinelli in this game? And how much is he banging on that door to say, you have to use me in the big game? Yeah, I mean, to me in this match, I saw a lot of growth from him because I know one of the things that, you know, earlier in the season or last year, you know, he has the natural instinct for getting forward, finding space. But I think in this match, you just saw a little bit more polish on a lot of the things that he was doing. 
Um, he really seemed to kind of understand the system a little bit more, understand where he's supposed to be. His passing in this match was really good. Part of that is Newcastle didn't do a lot of pressure on the ball. But, you know, he was driving at players, doing those normal things. And, you know, this is the thing that I think has been really important for this system is we needed two forwards. And I think we had that in Aubameyang and Martinelli. Um, this was one of the things that I was a little bit worried is could they work together because I thought Martinelli was a little too much like Aubameyang on the left wing. But I think this one maybe showed that he can work in that way because this was a, a relatively high touch performance for him. Um, and he actually performed really well. Um, he was very good at getting that ball into the box, um, both with his passing and with his runs. Um, that cross that he did for Aubameyang was absolutely perfect. I loved the way he just held that line. It was like such a perfect timing. You could see that him and Odegaard were kind of on the same page. The connection with Xhaka was really good. I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, it was really hard for somebody to say they love Martinelli more than I do, but because this is a player that I just absolutely love, and I'm very excited to see the growth in his game in this because this was a performance that I didn't necessarily know that he had in his locker. I mean, normally I would expect three or four shots, and he only had one in this one, but he he had four key passes. He led the you know the team in that regard, and it was just a great performance. I loved it. Oh, yeah. so happy. It, it just goes to show you that we have this stunningly good player, but he's in a position where we also have Saka, and we also have Pepe, and we also have you know ESR if he's going to play that. Like it is the one issue where maybe the cupboard isn't so bare, and the, the options you take out by putting him in are more challenged. I hate that we're already losing you, Scott, but we are already losing you, but I do appreciate you hopping on real quick. Scott's on Twitter. Oh, underscore that underscore crab. Thanks, Scott. Thanks guys. All right. Um, all right, Clive, now we can get into the meat of it. <laughs> Kidding. Um, but yeah, I mean, to the Martinelli point, one of the things that I think has been a claim is that similar to Aubameyang, you know, he's not a build up player. He's not a connective player, you know, so does he cause problems there? But you look in this game, 15 of 15 passing in the attacking third, three of three passing in the penalty area, the four key passes as um, Scott alluded to four chances created um, the one big chance created and the assist hell of a finish by Aubameyang, by the way, not, not getting the credit it deserves. But if you can find a picture of it, you should go look at it. He did attempt seven take-ons, only two completed, but I think shows that willingness to drive at defenders. He has this ability to sort of drop the shoulder when he's going to the end line and and get around his marker. You know, it looks like he's going to carry the ball out mm. and, he, and he can get around him. Clive, I, I think it is tricky. Let's not view it first in... Let's not look ahead to Thursday first. Let's just analyze the performance on its merits. I'm not saying this is a good Newcastle team because it is not. And uh, I think they were very frustrated with him, as you saw from what Fabian Schar did at the end. But he creates a sort of dynamic threat that I'm not sure. I mean, I love what Saka does. I love what Pepe do. They're both dynamic and they both create threat. But there's something about the energy and directness of Martinelli that maybe is a little different. Yeah, he, he is. Um, He's going to be. He's going to be absolutely fine. He's he's like a a player for us that we're going to need. And this is what Aubameyang's going to need because I think he's almost like Aubameyang, like Iheanacho is to Vardy at the moment. Iheanacho is doing a lot of Vardy's work and they're sharing their impact up front, so much so that Rodgers has gone to a three-at-the-back system to accommodate two fours and number 10 in behind. Mm. And I can see Martinelli doing a lot of Aubameyang's running, given the impact, coming next to him when he needs to, the left with a left footy left back on the outside. Suddenly that zone and that side of the pitch looks amazing. Abamyan can stay central when he's central. He can see it like that goal. He switched on, he can read the play, 
and he turned on the afterburners and, and scored that goal beautifully. I think if you look at players like Jota, you look at players like, what is Jota? Is he a left or a right or just a, is he a centre? He's just a forward, isn't he? He's just a forward that has threat. Son, just a forward that has threat. We've got one. Really intense, really smart, smart in the small spaces, can play in big spaces, inside and out. Nothing to see here. Can cross my left foot, cross my right foot. I can shoot with both feet. I can make my own shot. I can press defenders. I can press goalkeepers. It's going to be great fun watching him develop, isn't it? It's going to be great fun. We, must, we mustn't move youngsters, put them into slots too early. Just get them out there. I like him on that left-hand side coming in. He ended the game as a centre-forward. He can play in two forwards, obviously. He can be one of three fours. I don't really like him on the right-hand side, but he wouldn't let you down on the right-hand side, would he? You can tell that. Mm. Um, he would just make you do a bit better than William did, put it that way, and the comparison between the two of them was just embarrassing. And um, so, yeah, it's a, it's not it's not even difficult analysis, really, is it, Elliot? It's just, it's just going to be fun. Well, actually, it's going to be fun watching him develop. There's another thing that's in the back of my mind for him and Saka, actually. We've got to make sure we develop with them. Because the rate of their development is going to be pretty quick. You know, and if notice with Saka, he's going to be upset some of the rubbish is coming his way. He really wants it. He's, he's, he, wants, he wants to be competitive. These youngsters are not prepared just to play anymore. They want to come in and play. They want to lead. They want to take this team somewhere. They've got the ambition. They've got the motivation. And we've got to make sure we develop players around them quickly that are real men, real proper players that can... I can hold a team, glue a team together to allow the, these guys to really flourish. That's the most important thing. We have played the most minutes of 123 teams of anyone in the league. So we are in a development phase. Just because we developed these guys, we've taken some pain, they've had some in and out games, they're now developing really quickly. The next phase is to put some real glue next to them, some real solidity, some certainty. People that are not at the end of their careers, but at the 24 range said, yeah, I'm here now. I've arrived at a top club and I'm going to make sure I'm playing Champions League football in one, two years. That's the sort of players we need to go and buy. And when these young players look around, they're thinking, I'm in the best place for me. That's it. Where's my contract? That's what, that's our job for the next 18 months. <clears throat> so if we don't do that right, these guys are going to start to disappear off to Liverpool. That's what could happen. Yeah. I. It's really tricky too because I, I think we are going to be in a period the next couple of seasons it's going to require a big, deep breath and a lot of patience in one respect. And it's not saying that we're always good at, and that I'm not I'm not always good at, because it, it cuts against the thing I like, which is I want to see my players that I like play. But we have Saka, and we have Pepe, and we have Martinelli, and we have Smith-Rowe, and Aubameyang's on a contract that's going to be here a while, and Balogun just re-signed and presumably needs to, I mean, if not go on loan next season, which he might, get some first-team minutes, and there won't be any year, well... There may be, but it is unlikely that there'll be any Europe next season as well. So what happens when Martinelli only gets six starts next season and everyone loses their mind? You say, oh, you got to use him more than that. Well, at whose expense? Sack and Pepe? Maybe. Aubameyang? La- yeah, well, Lacazette will go. But I mean, that's that's the thing, right? Martinelli's in that weird position of looking like an absolute unique generational type talent who plays a position where we already have one unique generational type talent. We have a golden boot winner on huge money. And we have a 72 million pound asset we acquired that's just hitting his prime as well. So 
there is no clear path. And this is where, if you're good enough, the path becomes obvious, right? Martinelli might make himself so obviously good that there's no choice but to play him. But then who are you playing him over? And, and is that the thing where we as a fan base, Clive, are going to be challenged maybe more than the coaches in the sense that with no Europe, if that happens, there will just not be enough starts for us to get our guys that we like, our pet players, our Pepe or our Sack or our Martinelli or our Balogun who are on the pitch at the same time, especially if Arteta sticks around and ESR is continue to be looked at as a possible wide player. How, how do you think that's going to get managed? And do you think it could pose a threat to our ability to keep hold of a generation of extraordinarily talented young young attackers? Um, I'm not worried, mate, to be honest. I think well, you're not, was... but calm me down because I'm worried. I'm always worried. That's why they call me Whiskers. <laughs> well, if you just if you just take out three players, right? Take out William, Sell um, Eddie, I'm afraid, yeah. and um, and Sell Lacazette, and you then you got you got a few choices here now because Mithro's already here. You you add in um, Balogun and Martel is already here, but you make sure you can get more minutes. So if you just take a look at Willian's minutes, or you said something the other day that really upset me, kept me awake. That Willian's had a similar amount of minutes to Pepe this season, and I just can't going into that. this game, it was within nine minutes. Yeah, now after this game, I think well, so might actually that, still, still be the same. Come to think of it, yeah. <laughs> and so you know, you, you you take those minutes away, and give them to somebody else. You know, um, it I, you can find you take Eddie's early season minutes away, and give them to somebody else. It's there, and if you and if you take Lacazette out as well, there's there's a there's a lot, there's enough minutes there to go around. The problem is we look quite young there, and this is where I do think we need a, a signing, and that could be the issue. So if you lose three, you need to you need to probably you lose three and maybe not even have Odegaard back. You probably need to have one, mm. you know, as a forward, a real forward in that mid range, in that twenty three age range. that's done a couple of laps, you know, that understands how to tie his boots up. Do you know what I mean? Somebody's done it. He's done it. I think that's what we need to do, and that gives us a new face, a new player. I'm not against um, Zaka playing ten. I'm not against that at all. I think he'd be fantastic as number ten, and he could do something on on the outsides. Um, you know, I like Buendia, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure we've got room for that type of player. But I like that player, and so yeah, it'd be interesting what we do. But I'm not worried about that end of the pitch for most of you. I think. What we do in central midfield, what we do as backup left back, and what we do at right back as a first pick and right centre half, that's the key. I think um, when you're building a league team, what you do at your back door is really important. I think if you look at Man City compared to last season, what they've done this season, they've they've found Stones, they've found Diaz, they've tucked Walker in, that Cancelo's exploded. It's all been about their back line all been about the goals so they're not conceding and that's given them the opportunity to go and do what they normally do with us we don't score enough goals and we concede too many but we control games not too bad so we just need to make sure we absolutely eliminate things in the back move things up the pitch to allow our more flair players to play in smaller spaces and we are going to do something but the work is still at the back door for us the talent and the youth and the and the growth and potential is higher up the pitch because our younger players are attacking mid-stroke forwards. They are all there at the end of the pitch. We need to make sure we identify the back door. And then we can we'd be exciting to watch these young players become men and go out on the pitch where people don't worry about them and be scared about them and start kicking them like a kicking sacker right now. We might fairly soon, very soon. Fifth row, once he has that ability to play three times a week, 
it's going to be amazing to watch. Amazing to watch once he can physically just develop. It's going to be. Uh, I can't wait for it, man. Honestly, I can't wait. But it's what we do to solidify this, to allow me and Tim to talk about it the other day, to allow ways of attack when the ball comes out. You win your duel. You send it backwards. You know, you develop people that can sprint to the ball, win the races. Back again, we go. Create pressure, create waves, create momentum, offensive momentum, and not breakaway football what we're doing right now, transition football. So, yeah, I can't wait for it. And um, I'm not I'm not worried in the slightest. I'm more worried about getting people out the door to create mm. the room for them. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's 3,500 minutes, roughly 3,600 minutes between Inkedia, who, who I mean, who is the least of that, but uh, Lacazette and Willian. So if you think Lacazette and Willian, well, Lacazette might go. Willian, I don't know how you get rid of him, but if you think that those minutes go away one way or another, um, there's plenty of minutes across three positions, really, to kind of use them. Just to clarify on the Pepe-Willian thing, as of now, um, uh, Pepe, 26 appearances, Willian, 24. Willian, 15 starts, Pepe, 13. Pepe has played 30 more minutes than Willian. So, you know, you yeah. can, Make that what you want, but it feels like a a move that has obviously not paid dividends. And and I would suggest I don't want to make this a big talking point, Clive, because it's just not that interesting at this point. But it's another game for William to just show he has nothing left. In my view, this was this was a game where we were rampant, and he still I, I thought offered very little. Do you do you have anything left to say about this experiment? <laughs> I will I will say that you know when you have a player, it's, I think it's important you you get to know him and. To me, it's obvious that William is now an interior player. He's not a player that wants to play on the outside. Mm. He wants to play on the inside. He wants to come short. He wants to get it. He wants to tap it around, move it, just show his boots in the inside, look for final pass, maybe get a shot off. But he's forced on the outside. He looks like a player unhappy on the outside. Doesn't like it. Doesn't want to be there. Doesn't mean the moment. I watch him jogging around you know, off the ball. There's nothing there until he feels he might get embarrassed and he puts a sprint on. Um, I just think he's a, a player that looks demotivated and he seems like he seems well liked. People seem to like him in the club. You can see the players interacting really well. I just think he just joined the wrong club. I think he loved Chelsea. I think he lost a bit of motivation when he came to Arsenal and um, he probably needs to look for the next phase of his career. And um, I hope I hope he gets sorted out for him because he doesn't look too enamoured nothing I got nothing against him he's a player that's just we don't need anymore we actually don't need because we developed other players in that position so I appreciate you leaving some responsibility to me on this pod because you do so much heavy lifting here um and you know obviously like I can sometimes that can that can be hard for my ego because I I want to feel like I have a role and I appreciate you leaving it to me to have something against William. So thank you for that, uh, because I am happy to do it. Uh, all kidding aside, you know, another game with no shots for him, a, a, a player who is shot shy and a team that is shot shy is not ideal. He only attempted one take on, completed one pass in the penalty area. Um, you know, it's not that he was, oh my God, he killed us. I just don't, you know, I just don't see him doing a lot. Um, he did create two chances from open play, nothing particularly exciting about those chances, but it is what it is. No big chances created. I, okay. I just think, yep, yeah, mm-hmm. Please. Sorry, mate. I was just going to say, when we buy, well, when we do these veteran deals, I mean, I mean, David Luiz has been a bit unfortunate. I, I think it's sort of worked, but I think it maybe times up. Do you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. his body's not going to get any better. But I look at Man United; they get Cavani in. He just works. Do you know what I mean? He scores goals. It's really accomplished. Gets we get William in. It doesn't really work. You know, there's something about when players arrive at Arsenal. There's something that says. 
it's okay not to be tip top. You know, and I think there's two things that bother me. When people walk through the door, how the what's allowed, you know, what is okay. And ask myself the question why we feel we need to actually do that type of deal, which we've done before, and why we feel we need to offer more than our North London neighbours, for example, you know, and they said they couldn't afford him, you know, and um, and Marina would have loved to have got him. Mm. We want to go for the extra year, but we decide, yeah, we want to show how big we are. There you go, son, three years back. Did it's we also decide we, we want to show his agent how big we are? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, it's all, and that sort of stuff, you know, for fans um, who have it in, you know, whose patience is less than mine, that sort of stuff, I have to just put my head down and say, yeah, that didn't look very good, mate, does it? Do you know what I mean? Because it's, it's hard to explain. We need, we need to stop doing it. We need to stop doing it. We really do. Some of the things we do with the younger players, I think it's brilliant. Uh, honestly, I, there's no one doing what we do when it comes to younger players. And the younger players shouldn't be carrying the team the way they are. They've got back eights, a lot of them. We're resting them for big games on Thursday night. That's how quickly they've developed. We are resting our young players for games. I mean, who does that? Mm. No one else does that. That tells you a lot about those experienced players who are jogging on their way to Dubai. It's not right. It really isn't. But let's stop doing it. Let's create our own identity. Let's create something that says, that's what Arsenal stand for. And then when you go to Arsenal, they are going to... They are going to be aggressive. They're going to develop people. They're going to develop their styles that we used to do. You know, let's just keep doing that. And then, but make sure we understand who needs to be standing next to some of these young people. I think that's going to be part of our squad building chat as we go forward. Yeah, we're going to do a lot of those in the summer. And reminder, Alex Kirkland from the Spanish Football Podcast, who's also an Arsenal fan and absolutely sensational, is going to look ahead to the second leg with me after the break. Um, plus give you sort of the Spanish perspective on the job Arteta's doing, Thomas Partey, uh, obviously Unai Emery, the first leg, the halftime substitution, and what he expects from Emery in the second leg and from Arsenal in the second leg. So we will have that coming up. We'll also have a live stream pre-match, as has become um, the tradition now, two hours before kickoff on Thursday on YouTube, on Twitch, all, all of the hot, cool live stream places where the kids are hanging out. And uh, we'll, we'll go over lineup predictions and then lineup reactions and meltdown and freak out and get nervous. So there'll be plenty of time for that. For patrons, we're going to rewatch the first leg, uh, assuming Clive ag- agrees. But by saying it on the podcast, I now have sort of uh, forced his agreement. So that's a tactic I like to use there. So you'll, you'll not want to miss that if you're a patron. But if you're not a patron, also fine. One thing I want to announce, and then we're, gonna, we're, we're not done talking with Clive, by the way. I want to get to Aubameyang. But one thing I want to announce, we... um. You know, I, I don't do a good job, uh, what's the word, hosting. One of the things you're supposed to do as a host is say, please give us a review. And Apple's changing their whole thing they do on podcasts. So if you listen on Apple Podcasts and you wouldn't mind giving us a review, five stars would be awesome. Um, but obviously, your honest review, however it is, what we're going to do is we're going to have a competition. Uh, and every week, uh, not every week, no, but every couple of weeks on the podcast, we will pick a review at random uh, and then you get in touch and we're going to send you some nice stuff. So if you want to start leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts, it takes one second, you're done. It helps us because of the way Apple's changing their um, review algorithm thing. And then we will uh, we will pick some people at random every couple of weeks and, and send you some nice, nice stuff. So hopefully you don't mind doing that. I understand, though, if you don't have time, life is busy. Clive, two things I want to finish with before we get out of here and turn it over to Alex. Um, and a reminder, Grant Wall coming up tomorrow on a bonus episode. Lots happening. Uh, Aubameyang. Four shots inside the box, over one expected goal, a beautiful acrobatic finish, 100% passing in this game. Um, I'm not going to say he was perfect, but he looks pretty sharp. He surely has to start Thursday. And I think, you know, look, I didn't want him resigned. I don't want to retcon that. And it's not because I don't love the player. He is my favorite player. Let's be clear. 
And I still think he is excellent. I just thought it wasn't a good investment long-term. But for right now, I think the extent to which people have sort of written off his quality is a huge mistake. I think he can turn the tie for us. And he looked pretty sharp to me against Newcastle. How do you feel? Yeah, I think, I, I, I think his point as well. I think Tim touched on it early, very early, that somebody, the stick that he was getting, I just didn't see it. And I did happen to see some last week. And very upsetting. But hey, look, people are people, right? And I'm afraid they'll always <laughs> disappoint you sometimes. That's the way life goes. But what I will say is that four big players have got missing in Louise, Tierney, Aubameyang, Lacazette. They're four big players, right? And even for the brief period we saw Louise yesterday, we missed that player, you know? Lacazette, despite you know, the balance issues, he's a he's a proper player. Right? And same for Tierney, obviously. And when the Bamyang's on the pitch, we just look like we we sort of grow in stature a little bit. And I know he can be a bit meek. I know he's looking after his feet in this game. He wasn't really going to get tackled. Wasn't going to get touched. He played non-touch, non-contact game. A player of experience. But when the moment comes, he switches on. And as that chance was developing, you could just see it, couldn't you? Your eyes were going to it. You could see it developing. And it's like, yeah, I do. I wouldn't want anybody else on that far post. We in that race. No, no, no. I just think we have to develop our way. If we, if he's it, and we're going to play him at centre forward, then we got we got to make sure we have people who can just high touch players all around him. That can drive the ball to him, bring it to him. That can run past people. That can attract people. You know, attract two people over so he's got space in the box. It's not hard. It's not complicated. This. I'm listening to you and Scott talk about team play earlier and picking teams. As you're picking the teams, it's like all the relationships we've had in previous games are, are broken. <laughs> and so it's the sort of thing that if we were if we were podcasting on ourselves, we'd be criticizing ourselves and the selections that we make. It's not easy to pick teams, but it's very easy to pick a Bamiya gets in the forward. Just play him there. Mm. And be prepared that you may not have nine hundred touches, but he might get you three or four shots a game. And he'll definitely keep two centre-halves on their toes. And that allows everyone else to play. And I just think it's just a very simple thing. Aubameyang is Arsenal's centre-forward. And we bring somebody else on on 70 minutes to save his legs. Simple as that. It makes life so much easier for whoever we pick on the wide sides too, right? Saka and Pepe when the centre-backs are, are, are occupied with Aubameyang's runs. Let me ask you a question. Are, I know you're not a stats guy. But statistically speaking, in the I'm history really- of football... <laughs> Has there ever been a bigger gulf in career goals from two center forwards from one leg to the next from Smith Road? <laughs> Obama. <laughs> I mean, I love Emil Smith Road, but imagine being the Villarreal center backs and being like, oh, first leg we played Emil Smith Road. That was pretty easy. Now we've got Pierre Emmerich freaking Obama. <laughs> it's a different challenge. And that's not a knock on Smith Road, by the way. It's just, um, just, just yeah. to be clear, though, Arte- look, Arteta drives me nuts at times. I'm still holding the faith here a little bit. He's gonna play Obama Yang, right? He's he's not gonna do something dumb, is he? Yeah, we we, we hope he's gonna play him. He's gonna, we're gonna play him on the left and play Smith Rose full center forward. I, I don't know, but um, he's got he's got to play him, isn't he? Right? This is it. This is your your captain. This is a game for your season. Um, Arteta's got you know he's got big balls, right? He doesn't he doesn't care what we think i'm afraid although i know i'll say i'll tell you that back then he might need two lawnmowers by the way if they're really bad i mean you know, the battery life's pretty good he can probably just get away with one lawnmower anyway go ahead sir 
I do think though, listen, I watched a press conference and he was definitely he definitely heard that people said that he might not like Martinelli. He oh yeah, he said, I that. love him I love him more than you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it's amazing what they do here, considering no one reads social media, do they? You know what I mean? Or no one watches TV. So suddenly when it counts, you know, he had to shut that rumour down real quick and I do, you know, I have heard a little bit of the training, what's happening at training and I know for you know he's working very hard with with Pepe and Martinelli, for example, really hard to develop those players. So maybe it doesn't always come across when we don't get selected, but he is doing something with them in the background. And you know when they come and when they get better, I think he's going to be. I wonder if he'll get the credit for it. I don't really care. I just want him to get better selections than he did in the first leg. And I think if we get through his leg, I I like to see him hold his hand up and just say, look. Maybe I got it slightly wrong in the first leg, you know, and, mm. and that's going to happen. I think we discussed it, didn't we? It's more, it's more how you react. He does seem to react. Re- he, he does. I mean, he got it wrong mm. in the first leg against Slavia Prague, we felt, and then he needed the runners, right? He needed to get him behind. He got it right in the second leg, and it worked out. So, you know, he, he corrected the yeah, problem. Yeah, just got to simplify this, and we yeah. spoke about this. We just got to simplify a little bit. Sometimes I think he gives himself too much to do. You're creating lots of risk. You don't need to. So what, what, what's going to work for me on most days? Look, I always say, have a look at a game. Have a look at a game for 20 minutes. See what it, see what it offers you. Don't lose a game in the first 20 minutes because you haven't picked the right team. See what the game offers you, then go and take it. You know, I think this will all come with experience. You know, That's the way I look at it. He may not have a different view, completely different view. That's how that's he's right. But there's nothing wrong, particularly in a cup game, Having a look at it first, you know, based on things you know that work, you know, that you've learned from your own experiences. There was a couple of things in that first game. He had no idea they were going to work, and he did it anyway. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's that's um, that's risky, and if it doesn't work. Better shut down your mentions because that's what's yeah. going to happen. Yeah. Well, you have to be big enough to make the tough calls. I don't want a coach who picks the team based on what he thinks people will like. Um, but sometimes keeping it simple is fine. You do have to laugh, by the way, just how, how the world can work sometimes because Thomas Party, for as good as he's been, my God, the man is not having a good season shooting at the goal. And then in this game, <laughs> uh, Mohamed Elneny rockets one in from outside the, the, the box and Granite Shaka nearly rockets one in from outside the box. Um, it'll happen for Party eventually, but you do have to laugh at that. It will. <laughs> yeah. it will. Yeah. I, when Party signed, I wasn't thinking about his shooting. I didn't know anything about the shooting. Because on the YouTube clips, they don't show those, do they? You know what I mean? But, no, they um, show the ones that go in. They don't, they don't show the bad shots. <laughs> they don't show the bad shots. But I will say, from a defensive point of view, his numbers have got to be right up there. Yeah. Got to be yeah. right up there. All recoveries especially. Yeah. And I just would, you know, I would like to, to see him not so exposed. I want to see the contraction to be a bit quicker. Got bad news around him. Front, I think. Yeah, I know. That's the, that's the worry. Next that step. is the worry. Yeah. Um, that's the next step. Since, since we do have Alex coming up right after the break, just real quick, and I say real quick, and people hate when I say real quick because that is always a prelude to a 20-minute conversation. If you want to hear our full nuanced take on what happened at Old Trafford as it was happening in real time. I think we did a nice job trying to unpack that as it was unfolding in real time on our instant reaction pod for patrons. But I don't want to totally avoid the conversation here, although I don't want to get stuck into a long debate about it, which is hard because it's a complex topic that needs nuance. And and we're already going 45 minutes with, with another section coming. But real quick, having had the day to think about it, watch the way it's covered, the reaction to it. Um, do you have any additional thoughts on 
on the protests at Old Trafford and maybe how the media is choosing to frame some of those protests? It's a tough one, right? Because, the, you know, we think we got it tough with the Cronkies, but they haven't taken two billion quid out of the club. Mm. You know what I mean? And that's what's happened. And while Man United fans have seen that two billion go out, they've seen their neighbours spend almost that much in Manchester, rebuilding the city, taking their mantle, taking their titles, having 11 clubs around the globe, and then a Champions League semi-final in, in a two days, in a, in a day or so's time. That must be hard to take, really hard to take, you know. And um, so it's bigger than the ESL, way bigger than that. This is about ownership. This is about what's been allowed to happen—a leverage buyout with people getting the club to pay the interest. I mean, my goodness. But when you go public, that's what happened, right? So they went public, and they were always open to that danger. But they must be massively frustrated. And you look at the monster Manchester United. It is 150 million people around the world support that club. They are literally a cash point, and they still had success. They still got eighty million pound defenders. Just imagine what they could be. I mean, we've got a bad owner, and he does a lot of things. One doesn't do much actually. That's probably part of the problem. But he hasn't taken two billion out. You know, I'm not. I'm, I'm not standing up for KSC here. We've got our own issues. They need to stand up, and they need to develop our relationships in the club, and and they need to show them in business. Or they need to move away from it. You know, that's my opinion. But. Manchester United fans are in a different place and they're ignited by Sky TV. Now they're being covered by Sky TV. Um, they're ignited to really stand up around the Super League and, and the the unfairness of that sporting league with no merit and no and no, a closed shop, you know. But I do think that has really woken up this group of people now and I'm not sure they're going to go to sleep for a little while. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Look, I, I think we obviously all support protest. Protest is something that you should support because it's an important part of a vibrant democracy and a free society. So the right to protest is essential, is fundamental in my mind. And I'm, I'm happy to see it because when issues really matter, protest is important. I think different people have different standards of what is acceptable in protest. And I understand that too. You know, the funny thing is, it is a very, very simple question but a very complicated answer. And the question is this, when is it okay for protests to involve actions that break the law? That's the debate. For some people, they would say, you know, I support the protest, but you can't break in old traffic, you can't destroy property. That's where I draw the line. Protest is important. Breaking the law during a protest might sometimes be warranted. I mean, we can all think of cases, you know, lunch counter protests in the civil rights movement, uh, you know, not wanting to sit at the back of the bus, right? Th those were technically law-breaking protests that were absolutely essential. So the real question, the question that's not easy is, where do you draw that line? Where do you draw the line for a protest that you think should involve breaking laws and what laws are acceptable to break in the furtherance of that protest? And no two people will agree on that. What upsets me a little is the media coverage, especially in the U.S. I can only speak to the U.S. coverage because that's really what I'm exposed to, that has sort of very reductively just framed this as 80s style hooliganism and that is unfair mm. i think if fans were in the stands this never happens the protests would ring around the stands during the game they would be loud and vibrant and there would be banners but they don't have that access and i think what people need to re realize sometimes there's a feeling clive that protests are these sophisticated coordinated ideas that they how are we going to get into the ground and how are we going to show this on tv when in fact they are often spontaneous eruptions of emotion and that doesn't yep. make it okay. It doesn't mean you then get to do whatever you want. But you do have to look inward a little and say, we went on TV and we wound them up. 
We locked them in their homes for a year. We took away their football and their pubs and their interaction. And it's a sport tied to middle-class culture and young men who have been locked away from the things they care about and their friends and their culture. And then after a year of that, we try to cut the last strand of this thing that feels like it connects to what they remember and what they cherish. You know, in America, we see our sports teams as these glossy business entities. So it's weird to us. Like going and breaking into the ground would be like going to break into Walmart to complain about how Walmart's run. But in the UK, there are community organizations and the community organizations being taken away from the community. And so that has a different repercussion. So to me, Clive, everyone's mileage is going to vary on what protests should extend to lawlessness and what level of lawlessness is acceptable. And I understand if there are people listening saying, this wasn't acceptable. I draw the line at this because that's a personal line. But let's not pretend that we haven't had a situation that supports wildfires and then they lit that tinder. And this is what they got, you know, and I, I think you have to yeah. understand the underlying conditions for this sort of thing. Absolutely, absolutely well said. And I think it's a year when you've got to change how you judge things, judge people, judge events. This is we are going for a once in a lifetime part in our scenario in our lives. And this is just completely unique, locked away, as you say. And I just feel that people who went to our protests and they were so excited and the excitement was just being around people, you know, together, united. That alone is, you you know, it's new. It feels new. I haven't done it for a while. I know people who went there were ringing me saying, my God, it's just brilliant. It's just brilliant just being here. You know, and, and people get excited. I do feel sad for the, the policeman that went to work in the morning and he's, when he's got his face slashed with a broken bottle. I, I feel sad about that. Right. And I, I don't think that's good. You know, but, I don't think anybody would say that's good, right? And, and yeah. the other thing I will say is that these these broadcasters, by the way, Clive, saying, where are the police? Sick the police on them. Get the police. You know what? When it's just a bunch of young men in Old Trafford, no one can get hurt. When you start sicking hundreds or even thousands of police officers on a large gathering of enervated young men, you create an environment where things can get much worse. So while I understand there has to be law and there has to be order at times, this this call for, for the boot to come down on protest is how you create environments that become more dangerous. So I just didn't, you know what it is? I'm not criticizing anybody's opinion of whether this was acceptable or not, but the way the media sort of cheered the law and order side of it and equated this to 80s style hooliganism, like that really just rubbed me the wrong way because they made no effort to empathize with what these people, and I say these people as someone who's gone through it myself, but in obviously a very culturally different way, have gone through over the past year and what they feel is being taken from them. And just the unwillingness to to try to see that from people who just a week ago were decrying the Super League for likes and retweets and views on YouTube, you know? Yeah. So to give you some balance here, the sports channels over here in, in England have been a little bit more sympathetic to the fans, particularly the ex-players, for example, Gary Neville, Roy Keane, Jamie Carragher, for example, have been very sympathetic to the fans' cause. I think the cause has flipped from ESL now to ownership, so so fans have been ignited, and and the way you described, you know, post the pandemic, although we're still in it, I think he's really, really relevant in this case, and for all of us who are judging people, judging players, judging managers, judging fans, just keep that in the back of your mind. This is not a normal time. This really isn't. And I think we just have to breathe a little bit. And then before we put our own judgmental hammers down on people, just think what it's like. Everyone goes through this and codes in a different way. And um, let's hope this settles down and we get to what we need to get to in football, which is 
much better legislation so people like the Gladers can't even get into our game based on what they brought into the game in the first place. They brought nothing and they're walking away with billions and I don't think that's right. Yeah, well said. And I, you know, I do want to say also like, we've seen this with a lot of protests. I mean, here in the United States over the last summer, we saw this as well. There is a desire on the part of some in the media to characterize the worst actors in a protest as representing the entire protest. And here's the problem. You fill a football ground with football fans, some of them are going to act out. You fill a you know, theater with movie watchers, some of them are going to be on their phones. You know, <laughs> there's always bad actors. You fill a, a, an area outside a stadium with protesters, and some of them are going to behave poorly. And unfortunately in society, not everybody is always... <laughs> Not a, that's, that's the wrong way to say it. There will always be people that will be willing to act in, in ways that are detrimental to the cause or detrimental to the group or detrimental to others. Um, and so I, I think we have to be careful about looking at the hundred protesters that break into Old Trafford and characterizing the thousands outside of Old Trafford as being the same as, you know, a, a dangerous way to view this. You know, and, and I, I want to be clear. If you watch those scenes and you're made uncomfortable by destruction of property or breaking and entering or lawlessness at some level, I'm not going to sit here and pretend I don't get some of those instincts too. But I think empathy is such an important quality that is in such short supply right now. And given what we've all gone through during COVID and what's been taken from us in very real ways and very human ways, culturally, in terms of life, um, in terms of our, our, our liberties in many ways, trying to understand one another and, and walk a mile in each other's shoes is important. And I think what the Glazers did really spat in the face of people who were already pushed down. And so that doesn't mean you can go out and do whatever the hell you want, but it certainly creates an environment where a, a greater degree of, of frustration and, and emotional outpouring was possible. So complex topics, complex times, and I hope that we, I, I just wish that we could have a media that would cover the nuances and the complexity of it rather than feeling like they have to thump their chest for, you know, law and order and, and tar all these people with, with the same negative comments about the 80s and things like that. I, I've gone on long enough, Clive. I think it's fair to say. Um, yeah. Final thought. In classic, in classic Elliot style. Just quick. You called it. You <laughs> just said quick. just quick 20 minutes. Bang on. <laughs> Bang on. Well, there we go. All right, look. The Alex Kirkland interview is worth sticking around for, though, because he gives you a really interesting perspective on, on Emery, on Arteta, on Party, on the, the, the tie, on the second leg. And I hope you'll stick around for it. It is fantastic. Uh, Grant Wall tomorrow. Uh, rewatches all week. Um, for patrons and a live stream for everybody before the game. So a lot coming up in a big week for Arsenal and a lot of work to do in the second leg. So... Clive's on Twitter at Clive PFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. We will take a quick break uh, here from our, our latest uh, supporter of the pod, and then we'll be back with Alex Kirkland after this. Stay with us. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide, and you can log into your account anytime to send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, 
and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life. Here's what a few people who have already tried BetterHelp have had to say. Andrea is an absolutely amazing therapist, and I would recommend her to anyone. She has helped me tremendously with my mental health and has helped me stay on top of it and also understand my symptoms and triggers. My anxiety is now under control, and I have her to thank. I am so grateful. Elizabeth is great at discerning my areas that need work and wonderful about helping. She's a genuine, kind, and compassionate person. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash vision. That's betterhelp.com forward slash vision. And join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people are using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states in the United States. Special offer for Arsenal Vision listeners, you can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash vision. Betterhelp.com forward slash vision. Go there now and get the help you need. Okay, we're back, and now we're going to talk to Alex Kirkland from the Spanish Football Podcast. Alex is on Twitter at Alex Kirkland. Hello, Alex. Hi, how you doing? Yep, good to talk to you. And I just want to make sure everybody knows that that uh, Alex is part of the Spanish Football Podcast, and you definitely, definitely should support their Patreon at patreon.com forward slash TSFP. TSFP, if you want to learn more about all things Spanish football as you uh, seek to pick a new team to support, which I think is where <laughs> we're probably all going at this moment. Um, yeah. Although if uh, Florentino Perez and Stan Kroenke and the, all of them have their way, Alex, there may be no more uh, Spanish football or English football or any of that. Just one beautiful multi-rainbow flag colored Super League. So there, there's I that. mean, Florentino Perez is the last man standing in the, in the Super League party, <laughs> isn't he? It's just, it's just him. At you know what? Point, but he still believes. You can't lose if there's no one else to play. Uh, Guaranteed trophies pointing every at your head. Dot gif. Yeah. So okay, let's um let's do this a couple of ways. Uh, first of all, obviously, because there was a game that was already played, and we're going to look ahead to the second leg primarily. But I do want to sort of row back to the first leg first, and let's look at it firstly from a Villarreal perspective. You know, you obviously. Um, focus on Spanish football and and have watched Emery at Villarreal, but obviously watched him quite a bit at Arsenal. I don't think there was an Arsenal fan watching that game that was shocked to see Unai Emery with the lead, with the momentum, make a halftime sub that is totally defensive um, and craven in its nature and, and tilts the balance of the competition back in his opposition's direction. So having watched him at Villarreal, is this still par for the course or were you somewhat surprised by that decision? It was very, very predictable, wasn't it? To see that kind of innate conservatism that I think Emery has, has always had as a, as a coach come out again. And even if you know, he might point to the chances that they had at 2-0 up, and they did have chances, of, of course, to increase that lead. Um, and you know, he was complaining about the, the penalty decision as well, and, and those complaints may well be, be legitimate. I think you can't avoid um, the fact that, that he uh, shot himself and his team in the in the foot a little bit. It was really interesting actually watching the reaction here um, immediately after the, the match in the post-match uh, pitch side flash interview that they, that they have on, on, on Spanish TV. They were talking to Manu Trigueros, who was the scorer of Villarreal's first goal. And honestly, if you were just watching that interview, just looking at his face devoid of context, you didn't know what had happened. You would have thought that his team had just lost 5-0. Mm. It was incredible. It was absolute um, disappointment and frustration and he, he said it. He said, we should have killed this tie off. 
and they really should have. They had every opportunity to to do that, and they didn't. And, if, and I don't think we can put that entirely down to to Emery. And I mean, you're right about the halftime substitution. Of, of course, that also felt quite quite familiar. But I think there's no question that he he has his his share of the blame for that. It's interesting because as Arsenal fans, obviously our perspective is focused on how Arteta got it wrong, what Arteta should have done, the substitution he didn't make that he should have. But I'm curious in Spain, um, Arsenal would have come into this, I imagine, favored, if not heavily favored. And I wonder if the 2-1 home win is being viewed as an Emery triumph, if it's being viewed as as a potential triumph that was undone by his uh, strange substitution. How is the Spanish media and, and, and the Villarreal sort of supporter segment of the world looking at, at Emery's performance in this leg? Well, I would say that initially, yes, the um, the reaction would be, or kind of, because, I guess because people here, look, they don't watch Arsenal every every week like, like we do. And so what they know of Arsenal is a big name who, yes, may well be going through a, a, a tough time. But I think their um, kind of instant reaction would be that Arsenal should be beating Villarreal and that Villarreal would be underdogs in this tie, even if... I'm looking at the two teams and looking at form and, uh, and things like that. Um, you know, that isn't necessarily the right conclusion to, mm. to draw. So instinctively, I think they would see Villarreal um, beating Arsenal in this first leg as, as a good result. But having watched that, that match and the way that it happened and the way that the Arsenal, I mean, got pretty much everything wrong. I, I think the reaction here, like I say, has been one of, of disappointment and the feeling that this was, you know, a, a historic opportunity for Villarreal, really, because you know they've got to, they've got to, of course, as we as we know all too well, you know, European semi-finals before, but they haven't taken that next step. And this feels like, especially with with Emery, because you know, whatever we we think of him, his record in this competition, of course, is is second to none. Uh, you know, the feeling was that this was this was the chance, this was the opportunity to to pretty much assure assure themselves of their place in the final, and they they didn't do that. And I think, like I say, I think the the reaction ultimately is one of frustration and disappointment, a feeling that, yeah, it, you know, 2-1 at home is a, is a decent result. But I think they'll be worried now about the fact that they've let Arsenal off the, the hook and they will feel that, look, surely Arsenal can't be that bad in the, in the second leg. Now, we might know that. Uh, hang on a minute. We, we absolutely can be as bad in that, in <laughs> oh, that <yeah>. second leg. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I think you'll find we can I mean? absolutely do that. <laughs> <laughs> we may even outdo ourselves. Um, but I know that people here would think that, look, you know, maybe if, um, you know, for the second leg, if, if Obama Yang is, is, if not fully fit, then fitter. Um, and if Arsenal don't make some of the same mistakes that they made in that, in that first leg, if Arteta looks at it and, and gets some things right that he got wrong in the, in the first leg, then maybe they have let that, that opportunity go. And, and that will hurt them because, like I say, um, chances and opportunities like this don't come along that well for that that often I mean for a club like Villarreal even if they're a club who you know punch above their weight every year and they've got a decent record in in Europe over the last um 15 or or 20 years they can't expect to be in European semi-finals as a matter of course it's not something that happens very often um you know that first leg was their biggest game for years and years and years maybe going all the way back to that Champions League semi-final and it feels a bit like they blew it I think mm, yeah I mean I I hope they have. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that I'm completely convinced. You know, yeah. obviously a lot of focus on whether Ceballos should have been taken off. And the answer is yes. Yes, of course he should have. I'm wondering if there's any similar focus on uh, Etienne Capu. I'm reading here and I could be wrong about these statistics, but it looks like he's made 12 appearances in La Liga this season and had four yellow cards and a red card in 12 appearances. So 
it gives you a little idea about the way he plays, and we, we'll know a little of that from his time in English football. I mean, he gets a yellow on 60, uh, 67 minutes, he, not as much time for Emery to react, but then he's sent off on 80. And with Coughlin already on, you could say that maybe they're a little duplicative, plus you know, hmm. Arsenal have pulled one back. Is there any discussion? Has there been any discussion that, that Capu should have been subbed off in the way that there's discussion about Ceballos? What I would say is watching the game on Spanish TV last night, the Spanish commentators were absolutely purring about Capu. They really mm. thought that he was he was one of the best and certainly one of the most important players on the on the pitch. And so I guess the thinking would be that he was out there because he, he needed to be out there. And I, like you say, Coquelin was on already. Maybe if Coquelin hadn't been brought on already at that point, then it would have been a, a move that Emery could have looked at to, to replace Capu with with Coquelin with that yellow card in in mind. But no, I haven't I haven't heard too much of that of that reaction i have to say whatever else people feel like emery got got wrong i don't think i don't know it didn't feel to me anything like as inevitable that that second yellow as 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 the danny ceballos one which was you know the most inevitable um sending off of of all time i mean i've never seen i've never seen so many people correctly predict something on twitter yeah like i couldn't count how many tweets i saw set you know flagging up the fact that danny ceballos would be sent off and 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 so it came to pass and i mean sabios i don't know i don't know how you feel uh, about him but he's a player that frustrates me just enormously having having been really quite excited when he when he first signed for for arsenal because he's he is such a gifted player of course it's a different question whether he makes the most of those gifts or consistently applies those gifts but he is he is very talented and i had enjoyed watching him here in spain and i really thought that he could bring something to the Arsenal midfield. And there, of course, there have been moments, you know, that, that, that run he had at the end of the first season was was really quite encouraging. But this year in particular, it's just been, well, like I say, frustrating is the is the word. And I mean, I was listening to him on the radio uh, earlier this week as sort of a preview interview before the game. And he, he put out, I think it was the loudest come and get me plea I think I've ever heard to Real Betis to come and, come and get him in the summer. It could, literally, he was praising... You know the club, the coach, the team, the style of play, the the fans. Like, he couldn't have really done much, much more. Just made it very, very clear. Normally, at least players make a kind of a token effort, don't they, to say, you know, we'll see what happens in the summer. Mm. Um, I'm I'm very happy. You know, they pay lip service to that idea. There was none of that from Ceballos on the radio earlier this week. It was very much I, I cannot. You know, he, he said like I can't go out on loan again. Whatever happens, it's going to be permanent. And then he went into like a five minute. Um, owed to Real Betis, well, which of course, which is understandable because he's a Betis fan. He grew up there mm. and, uh, and so on. But yeah, um, just, just, just to finish that thought, yeah. I've, been so, I've been so sort of disappointed with, with him. And, and that first leg performance was another, another example, really, because, you know, he's, he's, get, he's been given opportunities by, by Arteta and he's not, he's not performing. And quite the opposite, in fact. It, it, was, a, it was a massive letdown for the, for the team. Yeah, and I think, look, he is not a bad player. Uh, the, the idea no. that he is a bad player is silly. I mean, you can see even in this game, there are moments where he, he nutmegs someone, gets past them. He has tricky feet. He he has good close control. I, I think you have a lot of problems with Ceballos for fitting in at Arsenal. It is hard for me to square his project restart form with what we've seen since, but he's a big, big, big personality on the pitch. He wants to run and come and get the ball and bring it up the pitch and play the final ball and chase yeah. back and dive in and dribble a guy. And I just think his attitude and his personality is bigger than what his talent can do at the Premier League level. You know, I don't think he has the pace I, yeah. for how, how big his personality on the ball is. 
Do you know what? He was quite honest about that in that same interview as well this week. He was he was saying he openly said, I am more suited to La Liga than the than the Premier League. He said that the Premier League, he thinks, has made him a more complete player, but that he's really suited to Spain. So at least at least he recognises it himself. And the other thing, I mean, you've I think you've been quite diplomatic, you know, saying that he's a big character. I would say, to be honest, that he comes across as a like a bit of a dick. Um, but no, but what I would say is that I, I don't, I don't always think that's a bad thing. Don't hold back. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I think, I think that some, no, but I think that sometimes that's actually quite an important quality in, yeah. in top level players. And they really need that, that kind of arrogance. Maybe he learned it and from that, Granit that, Xhaka. He seems like a bit of a dick too. Come on. And that self-belief that you, do you know what I mean? That you think that you, like you say, that you think that you can start the move, finish the move and, you know, do every bit in between. You sort of need a bit of that at, at the highest level, but, with him, it seems like there isn't always, I don't know if it's sort of the the kind of in-game intelligence or whatever you want to call it, to know when to rein, to rein that in. And that just seems like such a flaw in his game. And maybe ultimately that's going to mean he's, end up, he's going to end up being more suited to being kind of a bigger fish in a slightly smaller, smaller pond. I, I don't know. Yeah, I'll give you an example of a player who probably could have used that as Alex Iwobi because I think he was someone that every time he didn't shoot quite right or get the final pass right, you'd literally see him kind of berating himself on the pitch. His head would go down. He was, you know, he's a really nice guy. Yes, but, too nice. But, yeah, too yeah. nice. I mean, he needed that yeah. arrogance of a forward who thought, I'm going to I'm gonna beat you on the dribble, then I'm going to beat you again, then I'm going to, you know, pass it into the far corner. And he, he just didn't have that confidence. Ceballos has, I think, what, what's the top gun line? Your ego's writing checks, your body can't cash. That yeah, is exactly yeah, yeah. what Ceballos is. He, is. he is a player who has the mentality of, of someone who's just a little bit better than he is. And look, I think you see it in the first leg where you look at his touches in the first half, you look at his passes in the first half, and it's about even with Thomas Party. I don't think there's any scenario where Arsenal wants Ceballos competing with Thomas Party for this sort of dominant midfield build-up role. You know, and, and I think I think part of the the problem Ceballos had in that in that first leg was the system that Arteta implemented. But look, I mean Setting the Ceballos thing aside for a minute, as we look forward a little to what Villarreal might do in the second leg, and then we can, I definitely want to get your thoughts on, on the Arsenal side of it as well as an Arsenal supporter. But, um, you know, he won't have Etienne Capoue, which I guess is good. My presumption is we'll see a very similar lineup just with Coughlin instead. Um, and Francis Coughlin, who I was never a fan of, did pull off the sensational no-look into the box pass to Moreno for the I mean, that, that, was, that was the final straw, wasn't it? Wasn't <laughs> it that the moment me. that you just thought, I've had, I've had enough, I can't deal with this. I'm this, done with this, football. <laughs> this is like my own personal nightmare. <laughs> it literally was. It was scripted just to, to make me crazy. But I mean, in your view, is that the obvious and only change that we might see? Or is this a, another situation where Emery might do some wacky Emery self-destruction shit and set up to try to get a nil-nil out of this and, and really play into our hands? I, I, I believe that his starting point will be to, to go and look to defend this lead. I really do. And I, I don't think that's what he should do. No. I, I, from an Arsenal <laughs> point of view, I hope he does that because I, I think it would... Ba- I, I, I think if Villarreal are sitting back and Arsenal are given the opportunity to, to go at them for, for, for the entire game, I, I think that would be, I think that'd be fantastic news for, for Arsenal. But I'm, just not, I'm not sure if Emery can, can help himself. I, I think he'll play... You know, one up front. We saw him at least in in that first leg start with Alcácer and Moreno up front. I don't think he'll he he would be playing two two strikers necessarily in the second leg. And I, I think he'll look to to defend what they have, and then maybe you know occasionally look to hit Arsenal on on the break with the pace of of Chukwese on on one side and and, and of um, Pedraza as as well on the uh, fullback. I really think that's the approach that he 
that he will take. And like I say, from an Arsenal point of view, I, I kind of hope that's the that's the case because I, I really think that would suit Arsenal. Yeah, I mean, I, I would definitely take it as well. And I don't think we will see Granit Xhaka play left back again. I think that experiment might have expired between what mm. uh, Richarlison did on Friday and then what um, Chiquese did in just in terms of Putting, putting I mean that that was incredibly predictable as well. Yeah. I was I was we, we a little bit baffled. <laughs> I mean, well, yes, again, and you, I'm, of course, em, you know, Emery must have. I, I, Emery would have would have targeted Jack, and there's no mm. there's no question about that. And you just wonder why uh, why Arteta didn't didn't make a different choice, or whether I guess he just has the confidence in his in his ideas that he would was willing to to do it, knowing that it would be expected and and, and backed it to, to work. And obviously, it it, it didn't. Yeah, I, I I am somewhat confused by it. I mean, I understand that the injury situation is forcing Arteta into solutions he may not love, but I still think this is a manager, and we can come on to this maybe in just a minute, who prefers an exotic solution instead of a more obvious one. And, and I think he's paid for that at times. Real quick, you know, as a La Liga watcher, you will be very familiar with Thomas Partey uh, and the work he did at Atletico Madrid, a really elite kind of footballer that Arsenal paid elite footballer money for and has suffered with uncharacteristic injuries this season and been, I think, a little bit up and down. When he's been up, I think we've seen the kind of potential and talent that we have not had in the midfield for quite some time. When he's not been up, I think there's been a bit of a head-scratching attitude about what he's bringing to the to the team on the pitch and, and why he doesn't impose himself a little more often. Maybe that's unfair, adjusting to his first season, a weird season, an injury hit season. Mm. But I'm curious, as someone who was familiar with him at Atletico Madrid and watching him at Arsenal, and then in particular in, in the first leg, how you felt about Thomas Partey arriving at Arsenal, whether he's been what you expected or maybe a little different. I think he's been disappointing. I think there's no question about that. I mean, looking at that first leg, the number of, of, of misplaced passes and when, you know, he would just send the ball straight into touch, I, I thought was very, very odd. I agree. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. I think it's, we should be careful and we shouldn't be too hasty to judge a player, as you say, coming in for his first season and his first season being this season. I mean, this, I, I, we really should, like, we shouldn't draw any conclusions. I, I don't think that would be, that would be fair, but it, it has been disappointing. I also felt, and this is something else actually that the the commentators on Spanish TV picked up in the in the first leg. Um, they were saying how liberated Thomas looked mm. after Danny Ceballos got sent off, and the fact that Ceballos was almost crowding him, and that when Thomas had a bit more space and he was the guy in midfield, he he, he seemed to be playing with a lot more freedom. I think the other thing is, I think Atletico Madrid, although he was an an important player and maybe ultimately a an underrated or an underappreciated player there. And that was why he wanted to, to leave in the end. He was never, well, I don't think anyway, that he was, he was never the guy in the Atletico Madrid midfield. He wasn't a nailed on starter for them, was he? I mean, no, for much of the time he he wasn't absolutely, he sort of got progressively more important, I think as time went on, but you're right. He, he he was never automatic week in a week out. And there were other um, personalities in that midfield. Someone like Koke, who was the captain, someone like Saul, who's been badly, off form this season, but before that was always a really important player who there would have been more of an onus on um, to kind of lead the team from midfield and to kind of take games by the scruff of the neck and impose themselves from, from midfield. And Thomas was able to kind of do, do his thing, um, which, which he, he, he did really, really quite well. But without, like I said, without all of that pressure on him being the guy to make everything happen. And it feels a bit like he's been kind of parachuted into 
the Arsenal midfield to be the problem solver and to give us all the things that we were lacking. And and that's not necessarily something that he's that he's used to. Um, but like I say, I I just I, I couldn't I, I I sort of refuse to judge him based on this season because I think there's been so much going on with this team um, that I'd really want to want to see what he does next year before drawing any conclusions. And also, I don't want to be too revisionist because when he signed, I, I thought it was a really good signing. I thought he was the kind of player that Arsenal that Arsenal needed, um, and I sort of gave that deal the, the thumbs up. So I'd feel a little bit of a hypocrite. Oh, look, we can all, we can change our opinions based on events, of course, but I don't, I don't, I don't want to be too hasty to say that this hasn't worked and here's why it hadn't, hasn't worked, because I still think it could. But certainly looking at that first leg, I, I didn't think he was good at all. And look, to be fair about not wanting to be hasty, one, you will massively upset Clive from our podcast, who uh, we do not want to upset <laughs> because that would make me sad. And two, we have done time in the party wars on our pod and uh, <laughs> none of us came out unscathed from that. I do not sure, feel like doing we, a second tour in that, in that war. If, if you follow me, <laughs> um, the scars yeah, are still there. The scars are, the scars are still there. I look, I, I think he, I have to concede. I find him to be maybe more talented and influential at his best than I expected, but am equally sort of perplexed about where the consistency has been and that there have been some head-scratching performances. And I felt that this first leg was one of them. And I think it's interesting what you said about when Ceballos came off. I do think he is a player that when he's had Shaka park next to him initially and Shaka took on a lot of the responsibility, he struggled. When Ceballos is there running to every ball and picking up every ball, he sort of defers and struggles. But when he's given that central midfield role to really anchor... I think he does come alive a bit. I think he thrives with the responsibility. So maybe maybe when he doesn't have as much responsibility, he recedes into more of a, a passive role, and we're not good enough in midfield for him to take a backseat to anyone else. Um, he, he needs to impose himself. You know, to the point about personality, he, he needs Ceballos' personality, and Ceballos needs the personality of someone playing at Real Betis, preferably. <laughs> um, okay, so real quick before we get your take on the Arsenal side of things, um, just looking ahead to the second leg, do you have a sense of how this is going to go? I mean, I, I, I hesitate to ever ask for a prediction because nine, mm. nine times out of 10, you're going to be wrong. But just, I, I think 538 has us at 38% to progress. So, you know, a little under under half. Um, it feels right to me. But do, do you have a sense of how it might go? It's difficult, isn't it? Because I, I feel like I'm... Maybe this is more wishful thinking than a kind of level-headed um, expectation, but I do, I do feel like if Villarreal might take that conservative approach and that, and that might might help Arsenal. I feel like the fact that we we got away with a two-one in that in that first leg, given the way that the game went and everything that happened, that feels like I don't know. Sometimes it, it just seems to me like there are moments from that first leg when decisions that Villarreal made and chances that they missed that you can just see them looking back on and regretting. And I, I feel like maybe that's the, that's the case. But like I say, I, I am equally wary of that just being uh, wishful thinking on, on my part. But no, look, if I, if I had to make a prediction, I, I think that's what will happen. I think they will be fairly defensive and fairly cagey. And I think maybe that, I think that would allow Arsenal to kind of take the initiative and maybe start to, to play with, well, hopefully with a lot more um, fluency and conviction than we saw in the, in the first leg and, and go on and, and get the job done. You know what I think there's a parallel to weirdly is the Slavia Prague tie because I feel mm. Arteta got his system wrong in that first leg again yeah. with some fairly predictable things. We knew that Slavia Prague would press and play a bit of a high line and that we could run in behind. He didn't pick a team particularly suited to do that. Um, 
either at center forward or left wing. He corrected it in the second leg. He had the runners in there. We battered him. Um, I mean, the one thing I think you could say is looking at that, Arteta at least learns lessons. I do trust that he will not just try to stubbornly dig in and do the same thing against Villarreal in the second leg. So, I mean, do you think that that Slavia Prague tie is a reasonable analog in terms of yeah, the, the I coach learning from first leg mistakes and recovering it in the second leg? Yeah, I, I, I hear you. I hear you. And I was, I mean, I was so sort of pleasantly surprised by that, that Slavia Prague second leg. And I would, I would love to, I mean, look, we've, we've had that, we've had that sort of joy once there. So maybe it's too much to expect it a second time. I, I, given, given the kind of season that we've had, I, I don't know, but I would love to, I would love to think that that is the kind of the, the pattern um, or that is the kind of blueprint that we can, that we can look for in this, uh, in, in this second leg. That's, that's the thing. I, I mean, when it's clicked and we're still capable of of playing that kind of attacking football when when Saka and Smith Rowe and Erdegaard and um yeah, whoever else is there alongside them, Pepe, who I thought Pepe was was pretty good actually in the in the VRL first leg as, as well. You feel like there's there is that potential is there, but then that's been the frustrating thing as as we all as we all know, is just that it hasn't happened nearly often enough this season. Yeah. So Here's a question about Arteta that I, I I never really thought about, but having you on does raise the question. I mean, he is a Spanish player who never really got into mm-hmm. the Spain national team, probably always just on the edge of it during the golden generation that he was mm-hmm. unlucky to not quite be good enough for. Yeah. Um, he was the number two to a, a legendary coach who is from Spanish football. And he's now the manager of a big, big club does Spain and the Spanish media and the Spanish sort of football world feel any connection to Arteta? Do they have a particular interest in him? Is, is he is he a coach who's watched excitedly by by the Spanish football community? Because it, he's he feels more like an English player slash coach in terms of of his career trajectory, um, and because of his national team situation. But but how does how does the Spanish football media look at at Mikel Arteta? Yeah, it's a similar situation to someone like Roberto Martinez, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, who yeah. who spent you know pretty much all of his career outside of Spain as, as well. I'd say with Arteta, as a player, he was very much under the radar here. Just I the I think the Spanish. I mean, we shouldn't generalize, but the Spanish media is quite parochial sometimes. And when a player has even a Spaniard has spent most of their career abroad, they sort of don't exist in a way. You know, it, it's like not too much attention. Unless they're, unless the circumstances are exceptional and they're kind of like a wonder kid or I don't know, they're playing for one of the real, real top teams, they sort of get ignored a little bit as a player. Then as a coach, I would say that he's got quite a lot of attention. Um, a lot of that comes through having coached with with Pep. And I think that automatically gets him some attention and sort of the maybe the somewhat, you know, kind of lazy assumption that this is the next Pep Guardiola in the in the making. When he got the Arsenal job, that got quite a lot of attention here as well. Um, I don't know if the perception of him here has yet kind of caught up with the reality of what's happened this season. I think maybe they're maybe a little bit sort of behind in in that regard. So he would still be being seen here as a, um, you know, kind of a, a, an exciting up and coming coach, which he may well still prove to, to, to be. Um, his name was mentioned at times earlier, it was this season or last season, <laughs> when people were talking about possible future candidates to coach Barcelona. But I think that was very, 
that was really quite sort of lazy and you know sort of two plus two equals five more than anything anything else i don't think that was ever a, a realistic um possibility at all mm. at this stage of his of his career but I, yeah i would say that um sort of the well largely kind of the disaster that has been arsenal's season this this year um that hasn't yet been factored into his reputation here in spain as a mm. as a coach i would say interesting so let me put you on the hot seat before we focus on the first leg specifically and then and then let you go, uh, rather than keep you here all day. <laughs> Where do you stand on Mikel Arteta and the job he's doing at Arsenal? Oh, man. Um, it's a good question, isn't it? I was... <laughs> Is it? Let me think. Let me, <laughs> well, I was... I mean, I guess like a lot of people, I was really quite excited um, when he was appointed. I remember... Well, I guess we can go even further back, can't we? When it looked like he was going to be appointed the first time round... I was really quite excited. And then when Emery was appointed, I was a little bit deflated because I felt like Emery was, again, was kind of a conservative, safe, maybe a little bit unambitious choice. I'll cut you off just for a second so that you know that you're (laughs) you're in good company and there's solidarity here. You probably aren't aware of this, but we we did a podcast when Emery was announced. It is now referred to um, uh, notoriously (laughs) as Emery podcast number one. Because I absolutely shit on the appointment. I was so upset okay. about it and I wanted Arteta so bad and I, I shit on the Emery appointment and he had just been appointed and it's our first coach after Arsene Wenger and, <laughs> and people were so mad at me for the podcast we put out. We did an Emery pod number two where we were like, well, hold on. It could be okay. It might be fine. Well, you know what, I, what I think happened with me is that when, when it seemed pretty certain that Arteta was going to be appointed the first time, I think that I managed to absolutely sort of... Um, talk myself into and convince myself Mm -hmm. of the rightness of the Arteta idea. So then when Emery came out of nowhere, I felt kind of um, deflated. Um, So then when Arteta eventually rocked up again, I I think I was, I was pretty excited that I was, I was, I was really kind of looking forward to what he, he did. And there were, you know, I mean, I don't want to sort of tread over too much old ground really, but you know, that, that FA Cup win and all of that felt, felt so positive and felt like you could really see the changes that he'd made in quite concrete terms and they were good um, and things really seemed to be heading on an upward trajectory. And that's why I guess I've subsequently, like like everyone else, found this season to be so confounding and kind of confusing a lot of the time in terms of what, what he's been doing and the decisions he's been making. And... I have a lot of sympathy with him for a lot of the situations that he's found himself in, many of which have not been of his own making. But equally, that doesn't absolve him of the things that he's that he's got wrong. I, I'm probably in the camp that says I would probably still, you know, whatever happens um, in the Villarreal second leg and whatever happens in the rest of the, the season, I would still um, be willing to give him next year. Uh, but I know that a lot of people's kind of patience has has run out, and they are ready. They would be ready to make a a quicker change than that. Again, I mean, again, I just I'm not sure if it's fair to to write him off based on this strangest of of seasons. I don't, and I think that a coach with such limited experience was always going to make plenty of mistakes, and it's unfortunate that he's had to do that while while managing Arsenal and mm. he couldn't have done that while, while he was somewhere else. But I feel like maybe there's an element of, again, there's an element of inevitability when you hire someone for their first job as, as, as a first team coach, that they're going to get loads of stuff wrong. And you just hope that they learn from it. I guess maybe a lot of people's frustration this year, I guess has been, it, it hasn't always seemed like he has necessarily learned from some of those, those mistakes. I don't know, but I'm, I, I'm willing to, 
to give him more more time in the hope that things that, that things work out uh, next year. Even if that I mean that may be a little bit optimistic, and this this year really has been bad. You know, or, I don't know if it's been as I, it's hard to even think back now. But as as comparing it to the Emer- to Emery, and would you say that it's been? I don't really know how to quantify if it's been better or worse. I mean, Emery got us to uh, the Europa League final. I guess let's see if. Let's see if, um, if if Mikel can can do the same. I think what I would say is that Mikel has shown me football that I really appreciate and I see a future with, and Emery never really did that. But at his mm. low moments, <clears throat> he has taken us to places that even Emery did not. Um, you know, <laughs> I have a, a young daughter learning to ride a bicycle, and you know what I didn't do? I didn't stick her on top of a motorcycle and say good luck. I put her on a bicycle and I put training wheels on the bicycle and she learned that way. And I feel like Arsenal have have almost stuck Arteta on a rocket cycle by saying, not Mm. only are you the coach of a big club, we have no structure above you. We're going to sack the guy who was your boss and a big character in the club. We're going to bring in guys who are similarly inexperienced in Vinay and Edu. We're going to give you all the power and consolidate it in you and call you manager. And we're going to let you indulge all of your most sort of dark... Uh, uh, mm. instinct with no one to, to correct you. No one to say, do you need William? You know, we could probably use that money better. No one to say, do, are you sure you want to isolate Saliba in this way? You know, we did spend 30 million. I mean, if if there had yeah. been, if there had been a Manchi, if there had been a Zork, if there had been a structure to, to mm. really say, you just focus on what you know, you know, football, you know, tactics, get these players playing right. And then when he says, Hey, I'm thinking of freezing out this star player. Maybe that person could say, "Let's not. Let's find another. One. I'll, I'll resolve that. I'll resolve." You know what yeah. I mean? He just—he's had too many very difficult, high-level problems to solve for a guy in mm. his first managerial job, and that is not his fault. But the yeah. first leg is his fault. So, as as a final point here, um, he plays strikerless. He continues with Shaq at left back. He leaves Ceballos on. I said on our instant reaction pod that this was the first time I really felt like he was in over his head and he kind of froze. And I think he tried to be a little too clever by half. Then he didn't really know how to change it. Then he he froze instead of making the quick changes. You know, he kind of dug his heels in. Was yeah. this a night of a young manager really taking a bit of a, a bit of a paddling for lack of experience and real confidence in what he's doing? I I think so. I think so. I mean, as you say, I think he got it wrong with with the team, the the selection, and the team shape. And then there was a whether it was a reluctance to to rectify that when he when he saw that it was going wrong, or whether there's an element of stubbornness or or a little bit of of arrogance. I mean, I think that characterizing it as freezing is is probably kind of the most is a more charitable way to to put it than than using some of those some of those adjectives. I I, I guess. And again, yeah, you yes, would mine were more loaded. That... I will grant you that. <laughs> <laughs> I did enjoy your reference to his dark instincts okay. just now. By the way, I thought that was a fantastic. <laughs> oh, thank you. Kind yeah, of phrase, yeah, you know, Mikel Arteta's dark instincts. Um, yeah, Maybe, I, the name I, of his um, memoirs. But... Yeah. <laughs> but listen, I, I just again, if look, if it has, to, if it has to be, uh, you know, a steep learning curve, let's hope that it is a learning curve, mm. and. And, and and see, I'm I'm fascinated to see what he does in this in this in this second leg because surely he can't, surely he's got to make some some changes. Of course, he's limited by by Aubameyang's fitness and and by you know Lacazette and and everything Tierney, else. But Tierney in particular feels like the, the oh one man, that's really I know. tripping him up right now. Yeah, 
I know. And again, that's that's incredibly un- unfortunate because, I mean, you know, the bright spot from this season has been, I mean, my you know, the, power, the, the powerful love that I feel for Kieran Tierney is beyond <laughs> is beyond sort of description, really. It's just it's beyond it's, a pro- yeah. appropriate affection for a footballer. I, I hear you. That's fair. <laughs> it's, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, so I don't know, man. I just I get it together. And if I mean, Saka, the fact that the Bukayo Saka is still I mean, still has the the legs at this stage of the season with the amount of work that that he's 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 done is amazing, and he is such a terrific player and so so exciting. And again, I love watching him. And if he can just if he's just got enough in his his tank to get get through to the end of the season, that would be that would be brilliant. Like I say, I would I would like to think that Arteta will look at that first leg, will learn from it, and that with a little bit of help from from Unai. Um, and his and his inability uh, to, you know, curb those conservative instincts, then then maybe we'll we'll just about have enough to to get it done, uh, to get through to the final. And I don't want to think about that final and what Manchester United might might do in it. So let's not even go there. Yeah. All right. Well, I have uh, taken up more of your time than I promised at the start. So in an effort to have you willing to come back on, I will release you here. <clears throat> what I will say is, look. Maybe we win the Champions League, uh, the, the Europa League, wind up in the Champions League, and then we can talk when we draw uh, Real Madrid, inevitably in the group stage or something like that. Or we can talk like eight times a season in the Super League when we're playing Barca and Real Madrid every other week. So there'll be plenty of opportunity, <laughs> yeah. but I, I, I definitely hope that you'll come back again. I hope people will support you, your Patreon at TSFP, um, the Spanish football podcast, which is excellent. Uh, Alex Kirkland can also be found on Twitter at, you ready for this? Alex Kirkland. Um, you know, if you can't if you can't figure out that one, I don't know how to help you. But Alex, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thanks so much for the invitation. I appreciate it. Okay, that'll do it. We've got uh, patron pods in the next couple of days, live stream on Thursday, and on and on from there. So we love you. And we will talk to you after Arsenal 10 via Real News. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.